Welcome to Walking After Foo, the album by album discussion podcast of all things Foo Fighters. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Williamson. We are really excited today to discuss the eighth album by the Foo Fighters uh, that was released 19, almost 20 years uh, from the band's first album. And I am here to discuss this with my friend and co-host, Peter Kenigsberg. Pete? Hello again, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Are you excited to talk about this album, which is way more than just an album? Yes, we have a lot to talk about in this episode. There's more than just music to discuss. We are talking about the Foo Fighters' eighth studio album, Sonic Highways, released November 10th, 2014, the follow-up to Wasting Light, the band's 2011 release, if you'd like to listen to our discussion on that album, as well as the albums that came before that, going all the way back to 1995's Foo Fighters, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available. Search music, unsubscribed. You found us here. You're listening to us now. So you, I know you know where to go, but I'm just going to remind you again, follow us at Music Unsub Pod. If you're only jumping on in, if you're only jumping in for your first album, I recommend going back and listening to the whole story as Start it the top. plays out. Start but. The but here we are, album eight of ten, because we are talking about the Foo Fires albums leading up to the release of Medicine at Midnight, February 5th, 2021. It's coming up. It's almost which will here. Be, which will be next week. I know. We're next already- week is of, you know, from when this is dropping. It's going to yeah. be, it's amazing. And at the time of this recording, we've already heard three singles. Dave's Dave Girl's birthday is past. Happy birthday, Dave, by the way. Yeah, happy birthday. 52 years old and still rocking as hard as ever. So here we are. This is a very cool time to be a fan of the Foo Fires and being the band. I mean, it's never not a cool time to be a rock star, but now you're coming off of two albums nominated for album of the year by the Grammys. You've reached this incredible high where you are playing arenas and, and sold out concerts across the country, across the globe. So where do you go? Well, let's think about it. 2011's Wasting Light was recorded in Dave's Garage in Encino, California. And they played a couple of garage shows and had that kind of sort of garage band feel. But let's make it bigger. Let's take it out of the garage. Let's go to eight different cities to record eight different songs. They're an American band. Let's go around America and record in eight cities. And let's do even one better. Let's do even one better. Let's bring along eight guests to be featured in those songs, and let's document our experience in all eight of those cities. And on top of that, let's discover why the music that started there is so iconic from there. Like, why is country from Nashville? Why did jazz start in New Orleans? Why is the L.A. scene the way it is? Let us dive into it and make a documentary. And here is why. So they decide... So they decided Sonic Highways, the documentary. So, but how did we get here? Because it might seem, hey guys, from you know, walking after foo, that's insane. How does a band that's known for making rock music decide to make documentaries? Well, this starts as most ideas do with the Foo Fighters with Dave. During the break from Wasting Light. I believe the Sound City Studios, which is a well-known studio in L.A. where a lot of famous recordings were made, including Fleetwood Mac, 
and Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes, as well as uh, a little closer to home, Nirvana's Nevermind, were recorded. The There was something iconic about it. The board that was used is a very unique one. It's one of only a handful, and they were like running out of money or something. And Dave was like, I need to document this. Uh, he had been directing music videos for Foo Fighters, and I guess somewhere in his mind he kind of wanted to be a director. So he goes and documents the history of this, this studio, and he talks to all the musicians who were there, who recorded. He talks to the engineers. He talks to the owners. Huge success. He makes an album with it, and he goes on the he does like a small promo tour for it. Huge success. McCartney's in it. Uh, Chris Novoselic, uh, Stevie Nicks, Rick, Rick Springfield. Anybody who's anybody. Pretty much anybody who's anybody. Guys from Slipknot, uh, guys from Rage Against the Machine. It's pretty big. Yeah, uh, huge. We're not talking about it here because it's frankly not a Foo Fighters thing, though many members of Foo Fighters were involved. Yes. And this is not a Dave Grohl podcast, as we keep saying. It's a Foo Fighters podcast, people. It's a Foo Fighters podcast. But Dave does steer things in Foo Fighters. So he comes off of this and he's like, this was awesome. This was really cool. I've made this documentary. Foo Fighters are, they're working on their songs. They've got 13 songs that they are playing with. They're working out arrangements for. It's not perfect yet, but they've got demos of about 13 instrumentals, no lyrics. And so Dave says, I've got an idea. Let's do this thing. So what they do is they go from city to city and they spend a week in that city working on a specific track. They, I don't know, this is the, my biggest question that I will ask as we go through the songs. Yes. How did they choose the instrumental that was going to be for that city? And do we think it worked? That's a question that we'll get to as we go through. But there were 13, there ended up being eight songs chosen. They go through, they decide they're going to hop from city to city and they're playing and they, they go and record the instrumentals during the day, I guess. And at night, Dave is interviewing with musicians and studio owners and I, I mean, so many people who are involved in the music scene, his own family. And he goes from, and he goes and asks them about the music scene and growing up in you know, whatever city it is in the time they were in and what was the music scene like and all these things that were very prominent and important for how things like Chicago blues was created, or as I said earlier, how jazz was formed in New Orleans. And uh, he would write, he would write down notes from his interviews. And on the last day of recording, after all the instrumentals were recorded, he would sit down and jot down from his notes, the lyrics, and then immediately record them. It almost seems like an out-of-order way to do things. You have the song structure built, and now it's, you're going to take conversations after the song skeleton is there and feed in the lessons and the knowledge from those interviews into the songs, but they work. It, it does work uh, sometimes. I think other times it works a little less, but we can pick into that as we go into the yes. album. But before we jump into the album proper, let's get some stats on it. Yes, let's talk about it a little bit. So this album, first of all, is the shortest in the current history of the Foo Fighters discography. Only eight songs. Keep in mind, the number eight is kind of big here. There's eight songs, 
eight cities, eighth eight album, eighth album. So everything is framed around the number eight. I think Dave Grohl's mind kind of works in that sort of organized fashion. It's a very short record, like the time totals 42 minutes, pretty much. Um, in terms of charting success, it did very well. There is nothing about it that was any different than many other albums, but something I mentioned very early on in this series that I think is worth referencing again. After the color and the shape, album sales, total album sales decrease. Not necessarily because the albums weren't good enough, but because of the way we consume music. So keep that in mind. Don't hold it against them. But in general, this album was well received. It was a welcome surprise, not only to have the documentary, but to have the album come out sort of when it did, because everyone already knew that Dave was doing his own thing with uh, with Sound City. So everyone's just excited to hear the Foo Fighters again. And here we are hearing them not just with themselves, but with so many other features, which is another rare thing to have on many records. This is the, not the first time, because they it had been happening a little bit more as we've been going, that there have been guests, there have been guest musicians on, you know, In Your Honor, there were guest musicians on uh, on Wasting Light and Echo Silence. Echo Silence. Grace. There's tons yeah. of these, you know, we, we talked about it last time with Chris Novoselic on bass for the for the last one yep it's a thing and you know rami jaffe has been on a lot of records since in your honor so like it's been a thing of having guests come on and play right but at this point they are choosing specific they're actually choosing to have specific guests who are one of the bigger pieces of their story and part of the the journey of you know learning in in each city so I think as we go into this, one of the things is like they made a documentary. As each episode was released, they would release a single. Right. Because at the, the end first, of every episode, they would play the song. They would play, they would have a music, each one had a, each song had a music video with the lyrics that were, were in Dave's handwriting, written on it on the screen. Yep. So, you know, this is, this album is so much, it's, it's, a, it is a Foo Fighters album, but it's so much a, a shared experience. It, well, yes, but also it's a it's like a sort of like an addition, like an amendment to a documentary series. I think the documentary. Yes. I I personally think the documentary series is more successful than the album, and we'll go into that as we go through yeah. each song. But yes, I think this is like Alex Bear was saying in our last episode, how back and forth is required viewing for wasting light. Sonic Highways, the documentary is without question required viewing to accompany this album. This uh, the documentary series was released, I believe, on HBO. Well, it definitely was released on HBO each week. Uh, it came out, I think, Sundays. I think the first one was October 20... September 27th. September 27th, which was also a very important date because it was 20 years from when, he, when Dave first went into the recording studio yes. to record the first Foo Fighters album. Yes. So there's a lot of anniversaries, a lot of big numbers being hit here all at the same time. What's also important, I think, for people to know, Andrew, is where we are in our lives at this That's point. That's actually a really great point. Uh, and the reason why I don't think there's anybody else that could, I mean, we're clearly co-hosting this, but there's a, and, you know, we've been having some guests, but this was, was always going to be a you and me episode because at this point, we were both, living at home and I watched pretty much every episode live and you were there for 
just about all of them. Yeah, we had both graduated college. I would just come to your house, be like, hey, Sonic Highways is on this week. I would park myself on, on your couch in your living room, and we watched the whole episode, and then I just headed back home and be like, see you next week. Yeah. But this is, this is for us where we take what we loved about Wasting Light, what we kind of shared together about that album, and it continued post-college. Yeah. And sort of became the extension of that shared interest and excitement about this band. And also just recognizing this beautifully put together documentary, which, by the way, was produced with the help of Traveling Pants, which is the production company of David Letterman. And David Letterman is obviously a gigantic Foo Fighters fan, so he lended his his talents and resources to help them make this incredible documentary. So let's dive into it now. Now that you know about our history behind it, the history of it, let's begin where the documentary began. Track number one takes us into Chicago, Illinois, to talk about something from nothing. So as we're talking about this song, this is one of the, I'm really happy that they started with this out, with this song and they started with this city because I think this is one of the best versions of the, this is one of the best episodes of the documentary, but also one of the best ep, like songs from it. It's one of the only ones that actually survived past the tour. It's a single. And they played. Yeah, it was a single. Yeah. It, I mean, it was the first song. It was a single, but it's also one of the best songs on it. Yeah. In the documentary uh, and is featured in the lyrics. This is one of the songs that some of the things that they talk about are well the studio that it was recorded in which is electrical audio which is this is owned and operated by steve albini who produced the in utero album he was also very big in the underground punk scene in chicago with bands like big black he talks i mean dave talks with his cousins because this was the first time he went to a punk show and fell in love with punk music he talks to uh rick nielsen from Cheap Trick, who is featured on this song. He also talks to Buddy Guy, who is a blues guitarist. One of the biggest things that's talked about in this episode is Chicago blues, which then the, the main things are Chicago blues, Chicago punk from the 80s, and like power pop, Cheap Trick. This is one of the, I think this is one of the best songs on the album. It's a really great song, and I'm really happy that they play it constantly. It has a lot of parts, which is interesting. Yes. They talk about it. And I really love, I think it's interesting, the use of Rick Springfield in the baritone guitar. They talk about it in the documentary. Mm -hmm. He's just adding like just more thickness to it as opposed to kind of utilizing him for his soloing. But they, I mean, they've got Chris Shiflett, who is a great guitarist. So it's, yeah, I guess it's fine. What's, what's so cool about this song and all the songs we talk about, Foo Fighters don't skimp out. When they make albums, every album gives you more than enough to be satisfied with. This song is four minutes, 49 seconds. It's the third shortest song on the album. The shortest song on the album is three minutes and 50 seconds. The longest song on the album is seven minutes, nine seconds. So these are all epics. These are all big, grandiose songs that, you know, you talked about there being 13 demos to work through maybe they even piece some together we'll talk about that on one of the songs where i think there's there's maybe that piecing together aspect happening but what i also love one of the lyrics that i love the most in this song is a button on a string and i heard everything and that's as you mentioned andrew buddy guy talking about how he literally had a button on a string and he'd pull it back and forth to create enough of the twang for blues that's how 
yeah. blues music for him began. And it's such a beautiful beginning of music that I also so think it's referenced. Yeah. I really like another reference that he makes, which is looking for a dime and found a quarter. Right. Which is another one from him. If he ended up being a studio musician uh, for chess records, uh, which is a Chicago blues record label classic uh, that is well-known classic known for doing things for like muddy waters. He ended up on a muddy waters session and that ended up making him a huge, they ended up working together a lot. They became really good friends. And that really helped spark his career as a legendary blues guitarist. So he was looking for a dime and he found a quarter. And I think that was, it was the, that's the quote from buddy guy that he used. Right. There are times where like the quotes pulled are done perfectly. And this is a really great one. Yes. It really, and it, and it like stands on its own as its own separate song. It's not like, oh, we're talking about, oh, you know, this is specific to like, oh, these are the, the interviews he got. Like this talks about like, it, it seems like it could be something from his life. You know, he came from nothing and ended up this huge star. Right. Like it kind of has like, it, it feels autobiographical as well. So it, it, which is nice. And those are the songs that work best on Sonic Highways, the ones that feel like they are natural to Foo Fighters as opposed to being forced for a documentary. And feels like you could understand everything you need to know about their experience in that city from listening to that song. You should go back and watch the episode, but the song still captures the essence of the episode Yes, in that, in that four plus minute span that it has. And also something to keep in mind as we go through, we just began our talk on Sonic Highways here with something from nothing. Um, everything you need to know about these songs is in every episode. So what we describe to you is not something we have gained from prior knowledge. Everything's contained within that hour long episode they've created. Yeah. They give, they give you everything. Lyrical just, you know, which, you know, some people don't like that as much, but for what we're doing, it makes it super easy, but yeah, it's, but, but it's, it's great. It, it's good to know that there isn't something that could necessarily be misinterpreted or something that was left out of the details. Everything's yeah. there. Dave finds a way to very, very yeah. concisely and very in a very educational way explain just how this city molded his musical influence and those of other rock artists, uh, both past and present. One so of my Chicago favorite. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, ahead. one of my favorite other small things of uh, is like the keyboard part that Rami yes. Jaffe does. It's this yes. very like funky. And I don't know what which artist he's pulling that from. Some people have said like, oh, that's like a Smashing pumpkins sort of thing. But it didn't really feel that way to me. Could be a Herbie Hancock thing. It could be. Is he from Chicago? It's, he's referenced in the episode. So I could see. There we go. So yeah. so again, see, it's all in there. It's all in the, that These hour. These little pieces. They all, they find ways to put it together. Little so. bits and pieces. So. So there's the beginning, there's Chicago, that is the lead single, that is actually the theme song to the documentary. So whenever you see the intro music, that is what's being played, something from nothing. We move on to one of, I know, one of Andrew's favorite songs off this record, because I think, fun fact, sidebar, no one else would know, I think you named one of your fantasy football teams in my fantasy football league I think after it was this the, song. I think it was the year that it had come out. <laughs> I think so. It's the Feast and the Famine made on their trip to DC, where they learn about the go-go. They learn about the go-go sound, and they also dive deep into Dave's history in DC punk, in DC hardcore, uh, where they record in Inner Ear Studios, which is a guy's house, or at least it used to be a guy's house, right? who would record the Bad Brains, mm -hmm. and uh, they talked about Discord Records. They talked with uh, Ian McKinney from Minor Threat. They talk about Scream, which is the band that... Dave was in prior to Nirvana. 
uh, and Peter Stahl and Skeeter Thompson are featured doing vocals on uh, the track. Another cool thing, I don't know if you recall this fact, um, when we saw them in concert following the release of Sonic Highways in 2015 at City Field, Dave brought out Bad Brains. Yes. So, And he was doing that intentionally along that tour which eventually was dubbed the broken leg tour because he was sit atop he sat atop the throne uh while his leg was healing he brought on guests from sonic highways into various places and we're very lucky that he chose the dc episode the one i think is probably the most personal to him because he's from virginia mm -hmm. the most nearby major city to him growing up um for that song I think it's such a cool song. I think the story about the go-go beat is, is amazing. There is a segment in the episode where he talks to one of our friends. And I can actually say with confidence, one of our friends, Red Gold Green. If you don't know the band Red Gold Green, I encourage you to look them up. We've actually met them before in person. They performed a couple of times. Uh, Andrew has I've, interviewed them. I've inter Yeah, we interviewed them. We They've talked. been to our recording studio. Yes, in WHRW. I've seen them a handful of times since whenever they come to New York. And I hope they're doing great. Uh, I hope so. You know, shout out to Red Gold Green, who they do talk to, and they're in the music video. Yes. And they, they talk are. with they them are. about the uh, about the go-go beat and Chuck Brown and the sound of, uh, like, the yeah. funk, the, like, awesome funk from that is very specific to D.C., and Taylor Hawkins includes the go-go beat in the song, in the bridge. Yeah. So if you hear that little that's the go-go. Yeah. You'll know it when you hear it because you will hear a completely different tempo sort of yeah. you know, in the last third of the song. That's him doing the go-go. Also, fun fact about Red Gold Green, just you know, because I think this is worth mentioning while we're talking about them. They're called Red Gold Green because they literally dress in red, gold, and green. Yes. The three, they, one guy dress, is one red, guy, one guy is gold, one guy is green. They also, they're good. Their instruments also go with those colors. The uh, red's guitar is red and uh, gold's bass is like a goldish yellow yeah. color. And green always wears green. Um, he always wears green. Yeah. They also wear those. The other two also wear those colors. I but. mean, the level of commitment on that, I think, is the coolest thing. And so that was, I think, a really exciting thing for us. We had just spoken to them. Yeah, maybe a couple, maybe a little bit before that. Uh, We're only they, two degrees away from Foo Fighters. I hope you understand. I mean, that's how close we are. Yes, uh, it, it's been a, it's been a great honor. And like <laughs> we said, Dave and and rest of band and actually Red Gold Green, come on the show. We could talk specifically about the DC episode. If the Zoom's like. always open. Zoom is always open. But before we jump it. to the next city, yes, I want to talk a little bit about some of the lyrical pieces in here. This is a very fast vocal piece we, we're yes. talking a lot about the documentary jump to the music for a second it's a very it makes sense for the dc song guitar like the the part it's very tough it's very like it, it's your like like really like fast energetic heavy foo fighter song well not heavy so much as like fast paced upbeat, like, upbeat. yes yeah. there's a lot of it he sings it in a very punk style it feels like he's cramming as many words in as possible mm -hmm. which is I actually like this song a lot. I don't know how many other people do because they haven't played it since the tour ended. Right. Uh, right. But Searching for Truth down in the corner of 14 U, which is a street corner where there was a venue, I believe, uh, in D.C. talking about political stuff or like referencing how the D.C. punk scene would reference political stuff. There's a reference to Troubled Groove as well as, uh, which is uh, referencing Trouble Funk 
yep. which is the band that Chuck Brown and the Go-Go kind of originated in. Wrecking your, yeah, Wreck Your Brain, Where Is That PMA? Wrecking Your Brain is the Bad Brains reference, uh, and PMA is something that is talked about in the episode of Positive Mental Attitude, uh, that like you kind of can do everything, you can do what you need to, you can survive if you like keep a positive mental attitude and move, to move forward and like kind of push past because a lot of people in DC don't get to have as much like success. You think of DC and you think politics and the, the government and, you know, uh, K Street, but all the people that actually live in the city that aren't part of the state, uh, pretty much like it's not necessarily the same. Mm -hmm. uh, situation. So they're kind of, they're living in the seat of government while fighting for rights in the government. Right. Exactly. It's a really exciting episode. It is very cool to watch the Foo Fighters record in the studio because they are literally crammed within the space of a hallway, probably no bigger than, you know, than I mean, it's a, not a studio a, apartment. I mean, it's, it's a small space meant for small punk bands and they and are not a, small a band. very big band. Yes. And just their equipment alone takes up so much space. So right. they have Taylor as far back as you could possibly have him from everybody else. And that's like maybe 20 feet from Dave, who's like the close, who is like as far away. And it's right. really funny, but also kind of annoying, I'm sure to record that. Maybe the second hardest to record uh, outside of the New Orleans episode. You can see why this is the project most artists don't undertake doing one song per studio. They kind of stay in one place and stick to that. But I'm glad that they chose to do it differently this time. They move on from Washington, D.C. to a city I've been to and I love so much, Nashville, Tennessee, where they create Congregation. Recorded in Southern Ground Studios, the studio of Zach Brown and the Zach Brown Band, uh, who is featured on the who's featured on the song, and it has takes up a lot of time on the episode. But that's not the only person that is referenced here and that they talk to. They also talk to Dolly Parton. Mm -hmm. They talk to the I don't remember his name, but he was the keyboardist for Elvis. I want to say his name was Tony. I think Tony Joe White maybe is who you're talking about. Uh, he was or the, Tony Brown. Tony Brown. Tony, Tony Brown. Yeah, Tony Joe White. Was it Tony Joe White? Tony Joe White was. He was Swamp Fox. He was. He was. Yes, was, he was. was he wasn't. Was he in Nashville? He was in Nashville. He was yes. in Nashville. Yes, he was. He was. Yes, Tony uh, Brown was the was Swamp the Rock piano player. Yes, Tony Brown was the piano player. Thank you. This is, I think. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, not necessarily because it's Nashville, but I think this is the best song to come out of this, out of this album. It's the best one that's came out of this album. And I think it's the one that has nailed both being a good song on its own, right? As well as being like part of this, like referencing enough and talking about uh, from the documentary. Well, I, I'm not going to say it's my favorite. I'm going to tell you which one is my favorite later, and you'll probably disagree with me. I'm not going to say, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. But I love this episode because, first of all, I love Nashville. I visited Nashville back in 2019. And whenever you go to Nashville, it is impossible to not talk about the music scene because it is so vibrant and diverse. I want to emphasize how diverse the music scene is in Nashville. It's very easy to assume it is just country music. It is much more than that. There is a lot of talent coming in and out of that city. 
And I think the Foo Fighters did the right thing in this episode by highlighting the history of Nashville, as they had highlighted the history of D.C. and Chicago prior to this, by talking about why Nashville is the country music capital of the world, why is the music Hollywood, so to speak, of its of its area of, of the globe, and why it's relevant for a rock band, a hard rock band, to enjoy and appreciate and, and be a part of this music scene. They are very close friends with Zach Brown. He's on the song. It's very cool. Zach Brown is a classically trained guitarist, and you can hear some of that in his solo that he does on acoustic guitar. He lends his voice as well towards the end of the song. You're, you're noticing a trend here if you're listening to the music. The features for the song typically come at the end of the songs, typically. And that's what we're hearing here. Congregation, to me, is a beautiful, big song. It has a sort of come to church moment. And I think that really makes a lot of sense in Nashville. Country music is very much tied to the religion, um, you know, religious aspects as well. And I think there's that in the music video as well, there's a very big sort of religious, you know, holier than thou aspect to it. And that's talked about throughout with exactly they, cause they discussed the Grand Ole Opry, which yep. used to be a church, which is the, it's the throne of yes. country music, if you will, uh, is the place where country music is, you know, was performed and like shared throughout the South. And that's how the Southern region got a lot of the country music sound is from radio broadcasts of Grand Ole Opry. It's how the people Ryman. Went. Yes. At the, at the Ryman the mother auditorium, church. the mother church, the mother church, as they call it. Um, they also talk a good deal about songwriting uh, and yeah. how people who write songs in Nashville don't necessarily play their own music, at right. least in the big business of songwriting and that's a very interesting thing uh that is talked about especially when in terms of dolly parton who nearly gave one of her songs to elvis i will always love you uh, the timeless classic i will always love you uh but decided to save it for herself uh, because she wouldn't get songwriting credit if she gave it to elvis which is a right. classic elvis thing of uh his a manager or whatever it is if you wrote a song for elvis you would get your name stripped from it and the money would go to whoever yeah so she decided to you know stand her ground and not write an elvis song which that would have been made a great elvis song i can't imagine him singing especially when you get to that higher octave Pinder. nope that's not right <laughs> no it goes higher than that yeah i know it does but i was gonna try to go low i was gonna try to go low in the elvis notes <laughs> maybe there'd be um, a harmony that he would do maybe or something like that. but el but obviously like whitney houston nailed that song but that's not what we're talking about here now the but this is a song that they record in southern ground studios which is definitely talked about they also talk about the bluebird uh, which is a cafe yep. in Nashville where a lot of people kind of make their start. People like yes. Taylor Swift got her start playing uh, the, I think it's, it is called the In the Round. It, it Yes, singing it like a bluebird in the round. The Bluebird Cafe is, from what I remember being there, is sort of like a tourist central location to be reservations are backed up months there are many high profile artists but also some up-and-comers that will be performing at bluebird but it is famously known most recently for being taylor the place taylor swift kind of got her start but it's also the place where so many artists before her so many that define country music were playing to small crowds singer songwriter style acoustic guitar in front of a microphone i'm sure zach brown Zach Brown probably did. You know, it's it's music in its purest form at Bluebird. 
And yeah. so that's why it's referenced not once, but twice in the song. Yeah. And they do talk about the Southern Ground studio a good deal. Dave has love for studios and the backlogs of them. Uh, it was owned by RCA. And I think they had the notes from, you know, all of the people who had played there. And so the line mystery in these woods was kind of part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of, you know, he's, you know, people like Willie Nelson and Elvis and blah, blah, blah. So he was, he thought yep. it was really like, that was something that was super fascinating to him. Uh, and the chorus, I think is kind of a big, or the bridge is sort of a big part of that. Tony Brown brought up of having blind faith that you can succeed, but no, not false hope. false hope. Yep. That, you can succeed in the music industry. You need to have blind faith that you are good enough and that you can with enough you know, time and effort and energy, you just need to make your moment as opposed to just waiting for it. Right. Uh, but you can't have false hope. You can't just be like, oh, well, you can make it if you try as hard because you need to know you actually have to be good. You have to be good, but you got to but you do have to like have faith when times seem helpless. That's right. It's a beautiful message. It's a beautiful song. And I'm so glad he went to Nashville. I w- if I were part of his booking, uh, you know, booking his itinerary, I would say, you got to go to Nashville. You can't have it's a documentary yeah. at Music Cities and not go to Nashville. I, I agree. I'm happy they went here as opposed to Memphis because Memphis would have been a very different sound. Well, if they had replaced it, you know. Chicago sort of fills the void of Memphis, though not not perfectly. I'm not going to say that Chicago blues and Memphis blues are the same, but they are blues. And yeah. So if you had to pick one, he picked Chicago. And you've got some soul in there. I think it would have been very good. Uh, separate conversation that we'll have later. Yes. Uh, but they drive further south yep. from Nashville and end up in the heart of Texas in Austin, where they record what did I do? God as my witness. Yes. So first of all, I want to mention one of the sort of coolest things that happened in the recording of this. So they recorded this song at Austin City Limits. For those who don't know what Austin City Limits is, Austin City Limits was a, I guess, public access program. They, it was a television might have been PBS. Program. It might have been PBS. Yeah. Where Artists would come into this studio with an, a small audience and they would perform, but it would be all based in Austin, all made for that Austin area. Everyone has come through that area and performed classic artists, modern artists. Uh, it, it's, it, it's considered a rite of passage to pass through Austin and play there. And so naturally, the Foo Fire said, we are going to record in that studio. And in the process of recording it, they were playing around with some chords that they knew from other songs. And at one point, Dave looks over to Taylor and says, Hey, Taylor, I've been working on this really cool guitar card. I want, I want to know what you think of it. And he starts playing the opening that smells like Teen Spirit. <laughs> I think like, they did They did this think, bit, nah, nah. or they also cut to a few other people. It's like, I think Pat Smear was like, oh, I've, I've been working on this thing. And he plays like Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Yes, he you know, plays the opening. They just movie. like hop around and like, <laughs> fun thing for like fans of like, oh, this, like w- they love the classics too. And like, obviously the 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 nirvana ones very yes. very funny yes um, this this song is an epic it features gary clark jr who is one of my favorite artists uh actually fun fact about this as well andrew you and i our very first concert ever together we saw gary clark jr at one of our first central times park. actually hanging out one of our first times hanging out was central park summer stage seeing gary clark jr in the pouring and i mean pouring rain dumpster just just pounds it's of like water. pouring buckets of water and then it stopped. I think it stopped right before he started. 
That's right. Or like right yes. as he was starting. It was yes. very awesome. Such a cool uh, episode. Such a cool moment. What did, what did I do? Guys, my witness. There's a slash in between because there is sort of a break in between. The song transforms into something that was more upbeat pop reminiscent of Feast and the Famine to something more like Congregation where there is this call to God moment of, you know, God is my witness. It's going to heal my soul. That's where Gary Clark Jr. comes in to deliver a fantastic solo, as he always does. Um, this song, to me, is one of my favorites, but it's not my favorite yet. We'll get there. Um, I actually don't love this song as much. I feel oh, like Gary. Really? I like Gary Clark Jr.'s part. I like the God is my witness part. I'm not as fan of the what did I do. Um, oh, okay. I, there are. This song has less of the lyrical, like the lyrics that are pulled for this song don't feel as like, potent to me uh lyrically in terms so i'd say and also i didn't really think that this i feel like this was one where they were like oh we have to go to austin but i didn't have like enough to talk about they talk about 13th floor elevators which is the rory original erickson. yeah rory erickson who is one of the original like psych rock bands um one of the big things that's talked about in this episode is one gentrification of the area as well as uh just like how eclectic the sound is. Uh, they talk about blues because blues is very big there too. Uh, they talk about Willie Nelson a lot, uh, but Gary Clark Jr. They talk about Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimmy Vaughan, uh, who was who was his brother. Mm -hmm. And they talk about a couple of other bars, uh, a couple of venues. It, it, it didn't feel as strong. They didn't. I didn't feel like they had as strong a connection to the city in the same way that they did for DC or even Nashville. I so think this one was like one of my, one of the more yeah. disappointing I'd I say. Mean, I could see it. I think Austin, as we are talking about it, we were talking about it in 2021 and this was released in 2014. Austin's changing. You know, they always say keep Austin weird, but think about it. Austin is not the, the central focus of Texas yet it is the home of South by Southwest. This is one of the biggest conventions of any city or across the country in any given year when there is not a global pandemic affecting us. And at the same time, as you mentioned, there is a bit of a gentrification process undergoing in Austin. There is this influx of, of people coming in that is changing the, the outlook and the, the, the demographics of the city yeah. in a pretty dramatic way. And so I think the confusion you express with how this connects to the city and how the Foo Fighters brought out Austin in their song is probably the same confusion they felt walking around it, maybe not recalling the city that they once knew. I don't know when they were last there, could have been on a tour, but then again, keep in mind when artists tour, they rarely ever see the outside city. They just hop in and hop out. So the last time they took a good look at Austin, it could have been a much different city than they recognized. And I think if I remember correctly, when they talked to Gary Clark Jr. because he's from Austin, I think he hints at that. I think he says, yeah, Austin's changing. Not Some things are good. Some things are, they wish they would stay the same. But I think the thing to remember in this song is that with the Foo Fighters music becoming more and more recognized as being the, the significant portions of modern rock music, that Foo Fighters is now becoming not a dad rock band, but the fathers of the, the modern day fathers of rock and roll. I think they've, they've taken the dad rock they, 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 band, like being name. a 20 year old band at this point, they've hit that sort of status. Yeah. They are explaining to us as the, the less understood, the less affiliated, this is rock music in all its different sh shapes and forms. 
it can be ballady. It can be intense. It can be punk. It can be it can be bright. It can be dark. It can be everywhere in between. And I think this song sort of toes both lines in a in a really really interesting way. Is it the most successful? Certainly not. But is it the best way to wrap up side A? I think so because where we go from here is a place that is near and dear to Pat Smear's heart. We're going to as well LA. as their as well as, as, well as theirs because they all live they all live in LA. But I remember specifically Pat being sort of the first voice you hear on this in this episode of talking about his punk roots of LA. They go to the desert. They go to Joshua Tree to record their next song, Outside. Outside, which features Joe Walsh of the Eagles, uh, another LA band. And he's a very LA uh, guy. They talk about a number of things, including uh, his own Pat's own past in he's the founder of the band The Germs. He's the guitarist of the band The Germs, uh, which was highly influential punk band that probably got him to where he which definitely did get him as like a stepping stone towards, you know, being in Nirvana, being in Foo Fighters, as well as just an icon in the punks like scene. Yep. One of the things that I find most interesting about the documentary and well as the song is when they is that they do go outside of LA. A lot of LA has this, you know, glitz glamour of Hollywood, you know, it's like the rich and the famous to, you know, quote a handful of songs by Good Charlotte and Weezer. But one of the things they talk about that I didn't know that much about, which I thought was great, is the desert scene in like the Palm Desert scene about an hour or so or a little bit more outside of LA. Uh, where he, they talk about Caius, where they talk about uh, where they talk to one of Dave's best friends, uh, guitarist of Queens of the Stone Age and uh, them crooked vultures, Josh Homme, who started in the desert. There's a bunch of guys who would go out and play shows in the desert because there's nothing else to do. And the sound that came out of that uh, in 92 or 93 Dave called it the future of grunge was Caius. It's a turning point in both the record and in Dave's rediscovery of so much of his rock influence. You go quickly back to DC. He talks about how Inner Ear Studios produced the entire soundtrack of his youth, yet LA probably produced the entire soundtrack of his career of Nirvana and Foo Fighters because it built it built the basis. Grunge is not, Nirvana is not possible without grunge. And so many other bands uh, from even the Seattle scene. We'll get to Seattle in a couple of songs from now. And so it's important to know that everything is connected. LA is starting to bring the whole musical journey full circle in the sense that you think you know where Dave's influence originates. You think you know where the band's influences come from. You don't. I promise you, you don't. I didn't know about the Palm Desert scene until this episode aired, and I dug into it more and discovered that it really was as Im important as they said in the history of music. And so many of the artists we take for granted and the sounds we take for granted come from the desert, come from this place where you feel nothing exists, yet everything was born. And I, the song is great, too. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of it. It was actually the third of three songs that Andrew and I, you both, we both heard at City Field in 2015. It was played towards the last two thirds of their set. I remember it just very well because 
Dave's leg is broken. He's in the chair. He's soloing on the break in sort of that latter half where Joe Walsh is supposed to pick up on outside. And there's literally a moment where he just takes his guitar and starts banging it on his broken leg. And we just look at each other and we say, what on God's earth is he doing? <laughs> what is he do-? It sounds interesting. It's, it's punk. It's, it's grunge, but it's, it's too funny. He, yeah. It, this is, this is a song I really like. I remember it's, there's some, I don't love the lyrics. I really don't love a lot of the sound of the verses in terms of like lyrical melody, but I love the bridge. I love the chorus. I love that breakdown. The music for it makes perfect sense to me as the LA scene. It has this very like wishy washiness. Yes. It kind of fits with the glam. It fits with the desert really well, yep. especially that break. And this is a song that I love because this is another one that showcases the rhythm section and how tight this rhythm section is. It's a very small studio, again, similar to. Uh, to dc but this one really shows off how tight taylor hawkins and nate mandel have become in the last 20 ish years or maybe a little less at this point because you know he you know taylor joined in 97 but how tight this band is and then all this guitar and there's like this huge break in the middle where you have the guitarist from the eagles of all bands comes in and gives this like really epic like wavy just i the one thing is i wish there was more space for him to throw in because what's great most a lot of the other guitarists they fit in what they can they make it this like really long thing they make it this like really short you know like really quick or whatever this is one where it's like he just leaves space and that's like a very eagles feel yes which is awesome is it really gives you a good eagles sound but he's and Taylor is like loses his mind. He's a big Eagles fan. He's a big Joe Walsh fan. He loses his mind over this while he's recording it. You could see him in the. I watched the documentary for this one. When you get to the part where they're in the desert recording, it's yeah. so funny to watch Taylor Hawkins lose his mind while Joe Walsh does one take, and he's just like plays a couple notes and then just like lets it sit and then plays a few more. It's very. It's kind of like it's Miles Davisy. It's it's the way he lets the song breathe. That's what Taylor brings up. He says it's the way he holds a note. Nobody else in his in Taylor Hawkins' mind can do the sort of pause, the catch and release feeling of 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 music that Joe Walsh does. And you just see him sitting in that producer chair right next to Butch Vig, and it's like his soul has left his body and entered another plane of existence. He is just. He could stop his career at that moment. It seemed like Taylor was feeling at that time that everything was coming together for him in the most beautiful way. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me, and it, it kind of reminds me of uh, a quote from Miles Davis, where like he he's known for in his music, which is jazz, for like having, he plays like very literally like long notes and pauses. It's like, and something that he said is that the music is the space between the notes. Yes. It's not the notes you play. And that's really that, you know, uh, mentality is really showcased in this solo. And I would have taken another five minutes. Oh yeah. Well, maybe not five minutes. I probably could have taken another like minute and a half or so. I take of five. Just of letting him develop whatever that was going to be. But it was awesome. It's it's a real it's a great solo. This is this is definitely a highlight song that 
they also stop playing live. Sadly. I, it's this is one where like I don't I think that a lot of them also agree with some of the fans who say this is not one of their best. It does it feels like a bonus feature to the documentary as opposed to being a fully fledged album. And they only play a couple of songs from this live. Uh, and it only gets you only get less from from here on. This is one of the ones that's like this is a great song, and I wish they would play. It. And it would be great to, if they played it more, because yeah. it kind of does fit with their with their whole vibe. There's really vibes. There's really vibes for them, you know. It does. But I, I think does. that it's the lyrics that um, that I think are part of that. You know, you're you're sitting there. He's sitting there for a week trying to force lyrics to work. So I, I feel like that's part of like that's one of the things that I think was missed in here. Musically, it's incredible. I think that lyrically is where this song kind of falls short and why it doesn't make the future set lists. I think that can be said for a lot of these songs. I think the, the pacing sort of leads to that criticism and you are, I agree with you on that. So from LA, they are going to go back East and they're going to stop in new Orleans to hang out with the preservation hall jazz band to perform in the clear. This is, this is a great, this is a really fun song. I think it, it works pretty well. Uh, they record this in Preservation Hall. Uh, I have been to Preservation Hall. I went maybe the year or two after this was uh, this show came out. I went to That's Mardi cool. Gras with uh, a couple friends, and one of the things Mardi Gras, like during Mardi Gras, they shut down Preservation Hall because people are mostly <laughs> terrible, and they are afraid that things will get too rowdy and they'll destroy stuff because this place that they record and where they play in Preservation Hall is like a hundred and something year old building in a hundred and something year old room with what feels like the same original wood, the same boards, the same setup. It's essentially like a living room in the French Quarter. Yeah. Where jazz could have easily been created in that room. It's, and it's, we, it's, like, it's like a good saucepan that's been used a hundred times over the, the, the sauce is in the pan. It's the, in the wall. It's, it's in the cooking. bones. Yeah, it's, it's in all the marinated bones. in there. And so that's where the sound comes from. And it was so amazing to, to see them after that. It was really fun to see them and like to get the feel of like what new Orleans is like, but this was a really cool episode and they almost exclusively talk about jazz. They, they mostly talk about the, how, jazz started in new orleans and how it's there's so many influences of classical music and creole and you know like zydeco i think they talk about zydeco they talk to yes. dr john they talk to alan toussaint and you know about the neville brothers and the meters it's a great it's a, it's a really interesting learn about the new orleans music scene there there's few cities like New Orleans. Nashville is included in this category where there's a very specific sound attributed to that city. New Orleans is defined by its jazz. It's defined by what happens on Bourbon Street. It's defined by the horns that you hear on, on the streets that you don't hear anywhere else, really. It is a, a world in and of itself. And I think that's why this song also feels like a world in and of itself. It's one of, I believe, the only Foo Fighters songs we ever get in their history with horns, with a horn section. 
At and this point, for sure. At this point, for sure. At this point, for sure. Let me clarify. At this point. And it adds so much to the song. It makes the song not only much bigger than the Foo Fighters, because you now have a full arrangement behind them, but this feeling of in the clear, of moving into this space of full line of sight, everything is in front of you. The horns really elevate that, really bring that emotion really to the right, yeah. right this point. This is also one of the songs, you know, where they, they do talk about this throughout the series of, and there's like worry of, you don't want to, you know, they're Foo Fighters. You want it to sound like Foo Fighters. You don't want it to be like, of oh, course. we went we went to New Orleans and we wrote a jazz song, you know, or we went to Congregate, we went to uh, Nashville and we wrote a country song, which right. I do think that Congregation does take a little more country. Yes. It, but I think in a very good way, in a way that it works. Uh, but this is, it has horns. It has the jazz band horns, but it's not a jazz song. It doesn't feel like a jazz song. It feels like a Foo Fighters song. Yes. Yes. They know their sound. They know their identity. They know they're not trying to be something they're not. And they're also not trying to, at the same time, remake the sound that people love. I think Dave has so much respect for the sounds that are there that he won't try and copy it. He's only going to interpret it in his own image. And, include people who make that a, a legitimate reference to the place that he is performing. And so bringing in Prez, Prez Hall, jazz band, legitimizes to other people who are native New Orleans uh, residents that, yeah, Foo Fighters came in, they respected our culture, they understood our city's values, and they brought in someone who, who lives that every day to make this song a real stamp on the city. And it and also brings in people like Dr. John that you mentioned. There was, there, there was no one uh, rejecting their invite to talk to them. You know, they were able to get anybody that they wanted for this, for this documentary. And this is a great example of it. Yeah. He, they also, as I said, it's this old room and the recording in there was very difficult for a lot of these, for some of these studios, they were bringing in all of their gear from LA. So like right. the board from Sound City, which Dave bought and put in Studio 606 was moved to this New Orleans room and it's a single room and it must be impossible to record there. Not to mention that you just have tourists walking around French quarter and Dave gets distracted easily. And so all of a sudden he's like, he's, you know, they're getting ready to record a drum tra track. And then Dave, all of a sudden he's walking to the bar next door, taking shots with fans because that's the kind of guy Dave Grohl is. Yep. It, it was, a, it's a, definitely a distracting city. There's a lot to do and very little time to do it. And thankfully, in the hour that we had with them, they found a way to wrap up as much as they could in a nice, neat package. And that's song number six. We move on to song number seven. I want to spend a good amount of time on this one, Andrew, because yeah, we this can is definitely. One. Okay, so this might be the most important episode. And I say most important because this is the one people really wanted to know the most about. Yeah, We traveled to the Pacific Northwest to Seattle to record Subterranean. Uh, this is the one that everyone's thinking is going to be there, right? So Dave says, we're going to do, we're going to do this American thing. We're going to go to eight cities in America. What cities in your mind do you think like have this big, you know, iconic scene? And, you know, there's like the music scenes of like New York, LA, Chicago, or like big areas. And then of course you go to places like Nashville that have like a very iconic thing. New Orleans is like a very iconic sound. And I think immediately before you even get to Austin, 
is like the next thing you're like, well, it has to, you have to have Seattle in there. Seattle is the birthplace of the grunge sound, the grunge move it movement. It's where bands like Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam Soundgarden. and Soundgarden and Foo Fighters, Sunny Day Real Estate, who are other members, but Foo Fighters was started in Seattle because he was in a Seattle band after he moved from DC. He was in a Seattle band and the Seattle scene exploded in the early 90s. And so you think there's going to be, this is the one where he's going to talk about Kurt. As we keep talking about, this is a show, and I want to bring up, we were talking about, I was I was going back to the older episodes and you say, you said in the first episode, you know, we're not going to talk about Kurt. And I want to say in about every single episode we've talked about, I lied. <laughs> you're a liar. I lied. <laughs> but this is the one where you're like, oh, you're going to learn about Kurt. You're going to hear a bit more about Kurt. Not that we don't know anything about him, but like you're going to learn a little, you're just, you're going to get more insight. Yep. And you do. And I think that you learn the most insight from about Kurt from the guest on this episode who was who was a fan Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie sings vocals on this song and he was coming at it as a fan he was in high school or middle school in 94 when he died so he had a very unique understanding of where this came from of like this is of I think they he says it like my mom came into my room when they announced it. And like, he was, he's from way further North in, in Bellingham, Washington, which is pretty, a little bit closer to the Canadian border. And he, but he, he's from the area he's essentially from Seattle. Right. And he came and like, you know, his mom, you know, he was listening to all this music that's from this era. And, you know, he would, this, these were his favorite bands. These were his idols. And, then one of them dies. And it's it's so interesting to hear it because you hear it a little bit from Dave where he, he but Dave talks about it, that you know, how hard it is. And a lot of the other people that were uh, interviewed, uh, Duff, uh, Duff McKagan from, who's the bassist of Guns N' Roses, who, you know, he, he said he didn't message them. He felt he broke down in tears during the episode, during his interview, because he felt so horrible for like having not reached out initially it's it's a very heavy it becomes a very heavy episode yes but there are a few there are a bunch of other things that they talk about not just nirvana uh they talk about the early scene from the 60s the garage rock scene they talk about the sonics which i thought was an incredible learn uh of you know like a rock and roll scene from the 60s of how you got this heavy kind of guitar sound songs that you might know from them as uh my love will travel Mm-hmm. or have love will travel yes have love will travel uh which was a really is a really awesome if you if you like like sort of poppy but like sonic like recording wise kind of like grungy gritty stuff uh, i would listen i would check out the sonics they're really cool um other things they talk about they talk about uh heart the band heart which yep. is also like a seattle based band slash canada based band uh who's from that area and but there was nothing big before there wasn't too much big before then there was the heart there was the sonics which weren't even that big and then there was the this scene uh they also talk with the uh producer of the first Foo fighters album barrett jones who yep. was his roommate 
uh, in the in the like early mid nineties, who would record in his, I guess, laundry room, and would record like all of Dave's demos. Um, you know, still like, had all of them. He still had all of them, and they showed a handful of them. You know, he talked. You know, they had the Alone and Easy Target one uh, from you know ninety two, which is the one that he showed today to Kurt. You know, and he, you know, when he was like, oh, wait, you can, you can write music for Nirvana, you know, uh, they show the unreleased empty handed, um, you know, this was all, and the kids in America, which ends the episode, which is hilarious. A Dave Grohl, uh, recording of the cover kids in America. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, those are the songs on the, you know, songs from the laundry room EP, but uh, you know, they, he has all of these recordings. They go through the recordings and it's it's very fun. Uh, they also recorded this in Robert Lang Studios, which is just north of the city, which is where Dave was living at the time around there. And that was a studio where they finished, uh, where they recorded the entire Foo Fighters first album. And uh, I've been there. I went yes, when you have. Brett, so... We're also here. We might as well talk about that. Uh, Brett was, we, he talked about how he went to the premiere show for this one. Uh, when they, when they announced this, they did a show the night of the release in, they were doing secret shows in each city uh, where they would play the episode and then they would do a full set. Right. Uh, for the Seattle episode. Uh, he, yeah, he said he went and they, they it was awesome. Uh, we'll get to an, uh, a little bit more about the song in a second, but the studio that they recorded in is dug into the ground. It's like deep in, into the ground. They dug like deeper past the basement to record, to like make this like kind of quarry, which is an awesome thing. I haven't seen it, uh, the like actual studio part, but I went there and I took a tour and like saw what they were like setting up and talked to uh, Robert Lang, who's a really cool dude. Shout outs to, to Robert Lang. Happy to talk to you about the studio and yeah, about please. the first record and Come on show. this song. Uh, other people have recorded there too. Like lots of other people have recorded uh, in that studio. Maybe they're trying to capture something from Foo Fighters or Nirvana or they just like the idea. Um, but they also talk to Mac. They talk to Macklemore. Right. Who was I forgot about that. Back then. Can't forget about Macklemore. Macklemore. Return I, of the Mac. You know, they talk about the Seattle like like scenes that are kind of popping up now and things like Macklemore was just starting to become big. And he's, he pulls all sorts of indie like Seattle people to do a lot of his stuff. So like, that was really cool. Is there anything else about the documentary before we jump into the song? Um, nothing I was going to point out other than just this being, as you mentioned, the, the climax of people's curiosities about where Dave Grohl was going to dive into certain cities because this is Seattle. As you mentioned, this is his birthplace in terms of musical exploration and, and success career wise. He was obviously born in Virginia, but I'm saying he was, he really was, was born quote unquote in the city as a musical uh, act and performer. He has said in, in previous interviews, if Seattle could, could adopt me, I would very much like them to, I would like to be a permanent you know, born as resident of this city because it means that much to him. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved your reference about just where the studio was built because subterranean is no accident. It was really, you know, that, and that's why I built think they buried pulled under the, the line subterranean. Yeah, uh, 
But I will say this about the song. The song itself is the most somber song on the record. And I think it's no accident that it is because there are so many heavy emotions in this city. Um, so I'm not even going to say, is this about Kurt? Is it not? Everything everything that puts this city together, everything that Dave feels about the city makes him emotional about it. And so the song itself is emotional on purpose. So that that's that's the that's the impetus for the emotion. I will say this. The it is the only song that I feel it does not hold up to the content of the episode. I would totally agree with you. And the I think only one. I also think that of all the people you could have pulled, I'm very happy they chose. I'm a big Death Cab for Cutie fan. Yeah. Um, I, I think that Ben Gibbard was very underutilized in small harmonies. Mm -hmm. He's all, I mean, he's also a, a good guitarist. They could have had him on piano. I know that they have Rami pretty much whenever they want him. He's not quite a member yet. He will be on the next step, next, uh, album, but like you could have had him on piano. You could have had him on the guitar. You could have had him sing more. I think that you could have used one of their other friends from Seattle, uh, from the grunge, you could have gone. There's a number of different ways. And I think that it makes sense that the somber track instrumental does fit best on this song, but like why necessarily this one, or does this make the most sense? Is this a, like, did this feel like the right choice? I mean, given the heavy emotions in it, I would say yes, but it doesn't fit as well in this record as as everything else does everything else feels like a celebration as this feels more like a a somber you know remembrance yeah and it takes you out of that emotion really quickly yeah. this also as a fun fact this song has only been played one time uh and it was at that show wow and i remember talking to brett after this and it's no surprise that this song has only been played one time live yeah. Uh, but I think what's interesting about it is that um, they didn't, they weren't initially going to, I, I talked to Brett while they were, they're doing the show and he's, they're like, Oh, we, you know, s people were like screaming for what's great about a show in Seattle in a very small venue is that they could play all the old hits. They could play all the fun stuff that they used to play in, in Seattle. That would have been, uh, you know, like the deep hardcore fans want to see, cause they were the ones who, were there for the first show, which is great, yeah. but they were not initially going to play the song. And the people were, they were like, people, they were like, they had like a break and people were screaming, like, oh, subterranean, whatever. And Butch Vig from like this back, sort of back of the stage is like, we probably should play it. Yeah. <laughs> Producer of the album. So like, we, yeah, we should probably play it. And they're like, yeah, I guess, you know what, why not? We probably should. Yeah. We're here. We, we're here. We might as well. It's the only time they've played this song live. It's never going to be played again, most likely. It's not their best song, uh, but it's an interesting way to get to the take. I think one of the another interesting thing about it is the way that they recorded the drums in this room. They were they were having a lot of trouble with it as they were. It is like underground. The echoes that were they were getting were very difficult to capture. So mm -hmm. Dave played the cymbals, and Taylor played the actual drums very interesting which is very cool as they they were showing in the documentary the two of them are like splitting the and playing the drum part as two people playing one part uh and i'm not sure if that was like how necessary it was or it's like oh well 
Dave's in Seattle. We got to have see, you had him drumming. You know what I mean? How much of it is that? It's, it, it, I don't think it was, I think it was just for the sake of getting the song done. I don't think it was the moment of let's get Dave back in his, in his natural okay. habitat. I, I think it may, was just, we, am maybe I being, a problem being we need maybe to solve. a little more cynical, but you never it, know. But, you never know. Yeah. Maybe they, they could have thought that, but that is subterranean. That is track seven. It leads into track eight and Andrew, it is my favorite song on this record. Really? It this is. is <laughs> this has one of my favorite, this has one of my favorite parts on this record but it is yes definitely my least <laughs> i know it is song. i know this is the one of the only moments in the whole discussion of walking after fru where you and i disagree so aggressively so, very vehemently uh very. disagree i am a river uh is the name of the song that they recorded in new york they recorded it at the magic shop which is a studio in soho featuring featuring in air quotes, uh, Tony Visconti. Let's talk about let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the New York episode. Let's talk before about we it. jump into the song. So the New York City episode is very personal to both Andrew and I. We are both from New York. We both know New York City fairly well, and we actually, after this show aired, went to Soho to find the Magic Shop, and which we, we found did. it. Yeah. And it's and it's hidden. And, it is well, hidden behind a door. It's hidden, like as the song there, says. There is a secret behind a metal. There is. Yeah. It's a very like hidden because they don't want people to find it because it's it's the most unassuming it's door. very unassuming which is perfect for some of the people that record there which includes right. cold plays viva la vida um the biggest one which is why tony visconti is on this is uh he is the what probably most well known as the producer for david bowie for many of his records from like the 70s and 80s and what right. throughout his last two records of his life were recorded there uh at the time of the episode's release that would have been the next day but after that he did record black star at this studio mm. david bowie is living in new york for you know the end of his life so that's like a really it's a really big this episode has a lot of big heavy hitter interviewers who are very passionate about new york uh it includes nora guthrie who is the daughter or granddaughter of Woody Guthrie, the folk singer. Uh, they have Jimmy, Iov Jimmy Iovine, who is the legendary producer who grew up in New York. Paul Stanley, the guitarist of Kiss, who is a hard rock glam rock legend. He also comes in a little. At this point, you're starting to see people throughout from throughout the episodes. So like he was also at the LA episode, right. uh, but you also see people who weren't there. You have got Thurston Moore of uh, Sonic Youth, a big '80s band for the alternative scene. At the beginning of the alternative scene, you would have had Sonic Youth around the same time because New York, the music scene in New York, is very important to the you know sound of America. Uh, it's very also very important. Too. It's also very varied. And very important to me. I'm a very passionate person about the new, about music and New York City. So having these two things together, you have it's the birth of hip hop. So you have Chuck yep. D. You have Mike D. from Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, uh, who is not just an actor on a CBS show, uh, <laughs> but also used to be a very popular, uh, you know, rapper. Yeah. They talk to Rick Rubin, who legendary producer. Uh, legendary producer of the Beastie Boys, the founder of Def Jam Records, who now lives in uh, LA, 
he does he's more LA now than he is New York. Right. They talk to it's also is the finale of the series. And so part of it is this wrapping up, which I think is where they try it's very difficult to capture New York. You could cover New York in like so many things. I think my thing that I found frustrating about this episode is because of the passion I have for the New York City music scene and New York City in general. New York Dave didn't seem like the the interview that he had didn't feel very like he had any significance to New York City, but it felt like he had to cover it. He was obligated to because yes, as he exactly. says in the very beginning of the episode, he says this is the greatest city on earth. New York's he he says it at the very beginning. He said I left this to the end because it is the greatest city in the world. It is the biggest, most diverse, most jam-packed city in the world. We know it because we live it. New York City encompasses so many things. It's the fashion capital of the world, the finance capital of the world. In some respects, is a music capital because it's it hosts culture, some of the biggest venues. Yes, it's a major cultural center. It's a major um, cultural intersection of every walk of life. Yeah. And you hit on it perfectly. Dave is just a visitor. Yeah, he doesn't... It The episode doesn't feel like he... Not, not that he wanted to, because he did want to, but he didn't have like a personal connection to it the same way he did with DC, right. Seattle, you know, Chicago, LA. which is LA, these other cities he had more connection to in this one. He didn't. And no one else in the band did either, you know, for other cities like Chris Shefflett has country. He has Nashville, you know, they don't, no one in the band really has like a, like an actual, like, I mean, other than DC, like an East coast, like a New York feel. Right. And not that the, the episode suffers from that because it really is more like at this point it's this episode kind of feels like a summation we're capturing the the whole picture all the themes that come up of you know take you know standing up for yourself and uh, you know gentrification and you know loss and you know making scenes happen where there aren't them all of that is stuff that just call it's just like a full culmination together uh, in this final episode. And so things that would have been amazing to dive deeper into, you didn't have space for. And it's understandable why, but it's just a little, it just leaves this episode disappointing. And it probably wouldn't feel as disappointing if I wasn't from New York. You wouldn't know the, as much. Yeah. Or like, like I'm sure people did learn a lot from learning from Sonic Youth or, you know, that this was a major jazz center uh, or, you know, that the folk scene that also features Bob Dylan and Joan Baez is also from here. Yep. Yep. Or all of, or that hip hop was born in New York city. It is, it, you know, as much jazz is the, the origins of jazz are very rooted in new Orleans. The origins of hip hop and rap music are in New York city. And that's just not something that like, unless something that's great to learn about, but you don't have as much, um, and part of the culmination of this is they do have the best interview or the best person they could get for an interview. They got the sitting president of the United States, Barack Obama, to sit down with them for like, I don't know, five minutes and like talk about how music Maybe. in America is like a cultural piece. It was great, great interview. Really great to see him as like a surprise, but it, it felt more like a culmination of everything as opposed to an individual thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It is a tall, tall task to say in one hour we can distill New York for you. Yeah. 
very tall task. I think you could have done Sonic Highways New York and oh, yeah. eight You could have done eight episodes strictly on New York talking about going through from like folk and even classical music. Car- like yeah. New York City is also the home of Carnegie Hall, Lincoln right. Center. Uh, this could, it could be its own. The, the music scene in New York City can be broken down in a, a documentary. It could be a podcast. You could spend lots of hours doing yes. interviews with people easily. easily easily so naturally it's going to be just slightly disappointing as well as just you know but it, they do make it feel good by the end when they they pull everyone together and they pull right. brock right. in it but, feels like a, a satisfying conclusion to the series whose goal was to enter a city for a week discover as much as you can frame it into a song and take it with you and put it on a record so it did its job Yes, it did its job, though it was not the best song on the album. But I think what it I was. do. Well, I think it was. We, we will get to that in a second. <laughs> One last thing before, because we were talking about the shows and how Brett had gone the week before. I the moment I found out where the show was, I I, I was living on Long Island at the time. Right. I immediately left work, just <laughs> closed my laptop got on a train, like yep. took an Uber to a train and got into the city. Uh, the show was at Irving Plaza, which is on like 14th and what was it? it's not third. It's like they have like a, I think it's Irving. I think there's like yeah, a, there's is. an in between yes. third and the, this is not about New York City geography. But <laughs> anyway, I like got down there. And for those who are on, from New York City or Long Island, you you know that like to make it there in in out in like two hours is pretty close to impossible from uh like halfway out on long island yep. so i got there as quickly as i could and it was sold out because of course it was of but course. you know but yes let's let's dive into let's dive into it, it let's dive into the finale song what ends side b yes and the album i am a river so- i am a river so yeah so he- first of all what i like about the song is that there is a note held between subterranean. I'm in a, I'm a river. That is my, that I like the transition. I love that transition. And I like that. the intro, the three part guitar work that builds the beginning of the song is one of the most beautiful things they've ever written. And, and I love it so much. And that's why I was so taken back by the song when I heard it, because here is something that is so orchestral and grand and in a way, I felt, even though they couldn't do a, a, a one-hour documentary about New York justice, no one can. No one can. So don't fault the Foo Fighters for having not done it. They gave New York the biggest song. And yes. I think that is yeah. the ultimate sign of respect for the city. And that's why I'm so happy about it and why I think I like it even more than a Something from Nothing, which I think maybe more fans gravitate towards. Because it's so complex and so interesting and so different than anything they've written to this point there is this hint of if dave Grohl decided to open up uh you know a show at lincoln center and wanted to host sort of a a rock opera this could be the beginning of it this could be how it opens i can see that and also the references are really smart you know there being the secret beneath the soho door beneath the subway floor there's also the reference to the river which is brought up in God is my witness. If you remember going back to God is my witness, he says, I'm lost. You know, I've crossed the river finally. finally. Yeah. And then here he's saying, 
I've not just crossed the river. I am the river. I am the knowledge that flows from the top to the bottom. I am the understanding of what was before, what is now, and what will be. I have reached a point here, 20 years into this musical journey with the Foo Fighters, where I can say with the utmost confidence, I am the face of rock music. I am one of the last surviving bands doing what I do. I thought about this the other day. In Walk, the music video for Walk on Wasting Light, there's a scene where Dave is in the traffic jam and he's sitting there with his tie on, life sucks. And he looks in front of him and he sees a bumper sticker on the car in front of him has Coldplay on it. Because there was a time back in the beginning of the 2010s where anyone who liked the Foo Fighters kind of thought Coldplay was just not their cup of tea. I love Coldplay. And I think, Andrew, you enjoy at least early Coldplay. I, I, think, I do, I think I do like Coldplay. We can save that for, we're gonna save that save for, that for later. But my point that's is, a separate podcast. We'll, we'll, we're talking about Foo Fighters. My point being, in this New York episode, Chris Martin comes in because they talk about the studio where Coldplay recorded. And in interviews around this time, people ask uh, Dave Grohl about his affinity for Coldplay. And he says, yeah, I respect them. Because I think what's happening now, 20 years into this, and Dave Grohl being, if we're going to do the math really quickly, in his mid-40s, um, he's looking around the room at the people who grew up with him, and there's a lot less people in the room. Coldplay's in the room. A couple of other bands are in the room. And he's trying to bring those people in close, saying, yeah, we're still here, guys. I respect you for being here, and obviously you're good enough to be here, and so are we. And so what does that make us? That makes us the river. That makes us the thing that helps the energy flow from beginning to end. That makes us the bridge between the history that we recognize and the music that people love from us today. We have to keep in mind that there is constantly, constantly a six degree of separation happening around us. We can always attribute what we love about music and love about a certain point of time today to what came before. It's no accident that someone like... I'm going to throw out a quick name here and see if anyone even recalls it. You know, Alanis Morissette. Isn't, there's, it's not an accident that Alanis Morissette, when Taylor Hawkins is a drummer for her, is as big as she is. When you have amazing female singer-songwriters like Carly Simon before her paving a way. It's no accident that the Foo Fighters are successful because grunge paved the way. And so here's Dave Grohl in one song, in a very beautiful big way, saying, we've made it. We are the biggest band right now doing what we do. We may not be the biggest band ever, but you know we are the biggest band doing what we do. There aren't a lot of us left, so follow me. I know what we're doing. I'm going to keep you on this journey, on this river, and we're going to see where it flows, but know that we've steered the ship, that we have that we have the oars. We're guiding this. We're going to dodge past the rocks, but we're going to also explain you know, what it means to be on this river and what it means to be on this journey. And so... To me, it is the ultimate statement of seniority, the ultimate statement of veteranship, and the reason why I believe the Foo Fighters are the band that we like to talk about, the, the band that is as big as they are. So I dare you, after having explained it the way I did, to tell me why you hate this song. Because no. this song means so much, I feel, and I probably overread into it, and I think Dave Grohl would say, buddy. Good job, buddy. but no, no, not. you snaps, but <laughs> you're on a you're snaps. in a different you're in a different place than me. But you tell me what you feel about this. Okay, song. I now normally with an in, with a description like that, giving our past guests and even ourselves 
and the passion we've had for the songs we love by Foo Fighters. Normally, at this point, I would say you won. You know what I, lo- I do love about this song is the guitar part that I talked about. Right. I love this is musically bigger than anything they, they've done. I think what I dislike about this song is the mismatch. I think it's a cool song. I think knowing that it's the New York song is my issue with it, hmm. is my biggest issue with it. I have a couple other things that I'm like, I find frustrating. Um, and there are things I do like in the lyrics, but mo- a lot of it I don't. But one of the things I, I love is that this is a, this feels like a very, this doesn't feel like a New York song. And that's what I think is frustrating about it. I, it doesn't, it feels like the end of Sonic Highways. It feels like the conclusion of Sonic Highways song. Yes. It doesn't feel like it's specific to New York. Musically, it doesn't feel like any of the things they talked about. You know, they talk about hip hop. They talk about Sonic Youth. They talk about folk. There's a, there's like all these different styles of music that they talk about. And none of that is in here. It's, you know, they, they clearly brought in, they had a thing that they wrote and that's why, and they like, this has to be for the New York song because that's going to be the ending song and that's going to be the ending episode. And that's why it has to be the biggest song. Right. Because it's the end of Sonic Highways. Yeah. If they had done a separate song, if they had done like a, if this had been like an appendix episode and this was the conclusion song, like if they did, if this was a longer episode and they did a New York song, and then they, after the New York song ended, they did a, they had like a five minute thing where they pulled in the Barack Obama and they pulled in the, here's how all of these cities connect and how America is a beautiful weaving, you know, sonic highways that connect our songs and our history, which is the thing you brought up, which is beautiful. And I do love about it, but that I think would have been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also do find there are certain themes that are brought up a lot in these, in the entire album. Uh, for instance, rivers, uh, because cities are built on rivers and rivers are important to the history of a city. Yep. And there's two big ones in New York, as well as a the one that is brought up here, uh, the secret one on Canal Street, which if you don't know music or if you don't know New York history, uh, Canal Street, is, the name of Canal Street was a street in Soho or Chinatown. Why don't I know this? I live in the city. <laughs> it's it was a literal canal. It was, yeah. there was water flowing through it. It got paved over. They put a street there. It's now called Canal Street. Um, so there's like rivers brought up in Austin. There's rivers brought up in, you know, something for nothing. There's rivers brought up in I Am River. There are certain things that feel more forced, like to make sure that it feels like a New York song. It makes sense to have the lyric, there is a secret. I found a secret behind a Soho door. It makes sense to be in the New York song because you're talking about those things. There's a reason. I found a reason beneath the subway floor feels mm. forced. Okay. That that one feels forced. There's other things that, you know, could be connected. Chan, you know, channels changing, hearts racing, could be from anything. Ember that starts a fire. All this feels like it could be part of any song. From or can we recover love for each other? The measure of your life. It feels like something that's part of all of it. Sure. Some of it's you know a river, a river, a river, a river running underground is definitely referring to Canal Street, but there's a lot of it that feels 
like it's not specific to the city. It's like they they kind of dropped the shred of doing it this way. And they're like, well, we're doing the New York's ones. Does anyone have anything particular they want to talk about? Or like, is there anything specific to New York that we're going to like actually do? It's like, no, no, we've got this thing. We're doing an orchestra, which if they had talked about this is a center of classical music and how Carnegie Hall is like this thing and how like more modern music is now played at Carnegie Hall because it's now seen as rock music is now seen as real music. Mm -hmm. That would be, that would have made this so much better. It would, I felt like that would have connected it more. It is a cool song. I just don't think it's the best song. I don't hate it anymore as much as I did listen. Like the best part of this song to me is the three guitars and the transition beforehand. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, I, I see it as a I don't see it as the New York song. I see it as the end of Sonic Highway song. Uh, so that's my opinion on it. I don't love it. Um, but that is do you have anything else to say on the song? Just that I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't feel as much like a New York song as it does a bigger song than that. But I think that's kind of what I was alluding to in my analysis. So I agree with you there. Yeah. Um, I still maintain it's a song I really love. I think that, like I said, it represents the journey yeah. um, as much as the destination of being yeah. in New York. But that's they, the album. Yeah. They, they also only played this one twice. Uh, right. Once right. at the show uh, that they did for the thing. And then also at the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. They did I, it as part of the promo for the for the show slash the the album slash the yeah. you know the documentary but yeah that's I, that's the that's the record that's sonic highways so before we go into our discography rankings of this album the eighth studio album by the foo fighters andrew your final thoughts on sonic highways there's a bunch of songs in here that are cool they are not my favorite foo fighters songs there is less there is a small bit of cohesion but there's a lot and that's but there's a lot less cohesion than pretty much every other record and so it's it's not you know i i it's not what i usually go to if i'm going to listen to songs from sonic highways i'm usually looking for a specific one mm-hmm. this is not a record i usually listen to end to end it's i don't know if there's another thought i had there i thought i did and i lost it if it comes to you as i'm giving my final thoughts let me know but my final thought is that to those who see this as less than an album, don't. To those who see this as not a cohesive experience, don't. There is a single train of thought here, and it is how do we recognize and respect the music that surrounds this country? Um, And it is displayed in maybe a chaotic way, maybe a little haphazard, but Rolling Stone called this the most ambitious album the Foo Fighters ever made. And I assume, and I think I can assume with pretty strong certainty, the Foo Fighters will never do this again. They will never tour to eight different cities or more, even though, and I wanted to talk about this as part of my final thoughts. You and I, when this sh- when this series concluded, talked about where else could they go? If they were to do Sonic yeah, Highways Part 2, this is, yeah. where could this they is go? The thing I, so I've had, I have two thoughts on this. I want to talk about this. Uh, one of them is if they were to have gone to other cities in the US, what cities would they have gone to? Um, I have three in mind at the moment. I have a couple. Um, the first one being Detroit. Okay. Which covers, uh, which they could have talked about Motown, the Detroit disco. They could have talked with Jack White and the garage rock sound that came out of there in the early 2000s. Pretty obvious choice. Yeah. Uh, another one would have been, as we, we spoke about earlier, Memphis. Mm-hmm. 
where you could have covered Elvis and Sun Sun Studios, which is probably where they would have chosen to record uh, or Stax for Stax, yeah. stu- you know, Stax Records, uh, another classic uh, soul from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. The last one I can think of, or there's two others I can think of. One is San Francisco would have been an excellent choice of Hayden Asbury. Yep. Summer of Love, Grateful Dead, you know, hippie sound. Yep. Uh, the other one is that I just thought of recently was Miami. Oh, okay. Because uh, you have a you have a lot of mix mixture there. You have mm-hmm. Cuban sounds. Yep. You have Miami Beach disco. Kind of was drawn there. Uh, Clapton recorded a very famous record there, which prompted the Bee Gees to record there. Uh, and that is where I think the Bee Gees live for the rest of their lives, actually. <laughs> um, but like the sound of disco was very drawn in there, at least to in terms of like creating creating the songs in the studio. You know, obviously disco is, you know, very strongly lives in places like, you know, Studio 54. Uh, but uh, those are the four thoughts that I had on it. Did you have any others? Well, I have two different directions. First of all, I agree with Detroit that was on my list. That is a place that I think a lot of people after this series concluded saying, was this considered? Why didn't you yeah. go here? So yes, Detroit for sure. I have Atlanta on my list. I think Atlanta, uh, yeah. some people could argue that maybe the music scene isn't as strong as other places, but I think it brings its own Southern influence that is a little bit different than Nashville's. Mm-hmm. I think Nashville is very much modern country. Atlanta can bring a little bit of a more classic country feel perhaps to yeah. the to it. I also thought if they didn't go to New York City, where else could they go in New York? For the you know the hate Nashbury reasons you brought up in San Francisco, go to Woodstock, go to the wood, go go up north, you know, go upstate, go to that yeah. area, uh, you know, speak with the, the small town people there who still have a very huge hold on that history. Yeah. I mean, they did go to the desert to record right. instead of actually recording in L.A. Right, because so, they could have spent the time talking yeah. about the Beach Boys and yeah. the studio world, but instead yes. they they spoke there, so they could have. Uh, like if they didn't have a strong connection to New York City, they could have gone upstate or, you know, or you could have gone to like Jersey and like hung out with the boss. Yeah, go to Asbury Park. Yeah, exactly. So those are a couple of my ideas. If they chose to take this internationally, obviously London would be a oh, very down. obvious choice. Liverpool uh, would be a maybe too on the nose as a place to go, but it would be a place I'd love them to go to. I'd love to also maybe see them go to Madrid, to Berlin. I'd love to see them explore some of that middle Europe area and and take up take out some of those influences because there's a lot of a lot of really cool metal and a lot of really cool electro, you know, pop that comes out of their craft work, you know, for example. Yeah. Like they could have really done something unique if they did a european tour they could have done it uh they could have gone even more internationally they could have gone to uh they could have gone to africa they could have gone to like yes either south africa you could have gone to like morocco or like nigeria or lagos yeah it could have gone to lagos where uh a lot of records were recorded yes feel you know feel acuity you could have gone to you could have gone to Asia. You could have gone to Japan, which yeah. has a very huge rock scene. A very like they they are very big into you know rock and roll. Very classic records are recorded like 
you know, cheap trick at Budokan. Yeah. So you could have gone in that route as well. Yeah. Where, so you, where you cover in every, you could have gone like full Europe or you could have gone like full right. world or you could, I mean, like there's enough in UK. You could have gone a, done a full UK season. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, there's enough influences in that one country alone, just like America here in America. Yeah. So yeah. So I think there are, there's a template here. If other art, artists, other bands want to try this, this is a great template. Yeah. Take a look at Sonic Highways. I think this is a this was done in a very successful way, though many people in the Foo Fighters universe may not consider this their favorite record. I'd like to ask you now, Andrew, where does Sonic Highways rank in your discography? You are going to probably be slightly upset, but this does go Try me. at the bottom. This oh, is this is number one eight. by one. This goes beneath one by one because oh. I grew up more with one by one. I do have more passion for a lot of those songs, even the okay. ones that we talked about, the you know, the lesser knowns, the overdrives, uh, you know, have it alls. I do love those songs. These songs, maybe it's because I spent less time with them. Uh, there's less of them. There's only eight songs here. And so if I'm, if I dislike, or I don't love every song, like I don't love in the clear. I don't love what did I do? God is my witness. I don't mm-hmm. love subterranean. I don't really love. I am a river all that much. That's half the songs. So with, just on a numbers game, I, I do put it at the bottom. Okay. All right. So just get, give everyone, just so we understand, your complete ranking then. That would be the color and the shape, Wasting Light, Foo Fighters' self-titled first album. There is nothing left to lose in your honor. Echo, silence, patience, grace, one by one. Sonic Sonic Highways. Got it. Here's my ranking. Number one, Wasting Light. Two, Color in the Shape. Three, Foo Fighters 95. Four, Echo Silence, Patience and Grace. Five, In Your Honor. Six, Sonic Highways. Number six. Number seven, Nothing Left to Lose. Number eight, One by One. Let me defend. Sure. Because I can see your face. I'm... Ladies and gentlemen listening, you can't see his face, but his eyes just went wide when I said number six was Sonic Highways. And I think maybe we have just ended the series because I have just committed sacrilege in my discography. We're only one, we're only one album from, from present day. We can't, we're not stopping Let's, now, we got to defend. I will defend. I, as much as I can, try and connect these albums to a life experience personally. I talked about on Wasting Light how I was connected to the fact that in the re- in the record library at WHRW, where the radio station we were both a part of, this record was beloved, and WHRW was a place that I loved, and so all of those memories combined with the love for this record made that such a high watermark for Foo Fighters music for me, and for this the history of my experience with this band. Sonic Highways is is pretty close in terms of that really strong personal experience. The first time I saw Foo Fighters was with you in 2015. They were touring on that record. We were standing there in general admission on in the outfield of City Field. I'm a Mets fan, by the way. That was the greatest moment of my life. Uh, one of the greatest moments of my life um, where we were seeing the full Chicago episode before the band came out. And so, you know, there's there was already this strong connection to it. Uh, Post graduation, you know, hanging out at your house, watching each episode there's a lot in this album. There's a very intimate experience with it where it's not just the music, but it's an entire documentary with a lot of famous names and faces connected to it. And, and, and being so passionate about telling these great stories of, of where some of our favorite music began. 
And so, yeah, it is not the best collection of songs. It is certainly not the most complete album. And it wasn't rated as such critically and didn't receive any major awards as far as, I, as I've as i researched. Um, but that doesn't make it the worst record. I think Nothing Left to Lose is underrated, but at the same time, doesn't give me enough to return to. One by One, as we've discussed, could have been a four-song EP and then bonus tracks after that released you know, in different albums across their discography. And so it would be hard for me to say, well, there's so much I feel strongly about in Sonic Highways that I can't put it. I can't put it at the end. Yeah, and I can't I understand. Put it, I can't put it towards the top either. Yeah. So number six out of eight feels right for now. Sure. It may I be pushed will, down later. Who knows? I do have to agree with your sentiment. It's fair. I do think that this documentary is amazing. If yeah. you go out and find it, it's not. I'm in the transition to HBO. To Max. HBO Max, it's not streaming there, uh, but maybe, maybe Dave can. If Dave, if you're listening, you definitely have control over this one, or David Letterman, but yeah. either of the Daves, get this on there so that people can watch it. Maybe people want it. People, people want it. I really yeah. love this documentary series. It's one of the best, and like it definitely gives a good from a rock, from a fan of rock music to go and explore the history of American music. It's a great intro. Go from there and dive deeper into into records. Go to those cities when, obviously, travel is a thing and shows can be a thing. But this is how coming out of college and going into a place where I was starting work, I think I got a job offer the day the congregation, the Nashville episode came out. That's when I got my first job offer. Wow. I remember like this was a way that I was thinking about Okay, well, I now have money to like go on a. I, I can take I, I can take a vacation now. I can like I can, can do know, go on my, I can do things on my own with my own money. Yeah. And when I do that, when I go say I want to go see a city, I want to go like travel somewhere. I think about music. I think about I do research in which artists are from there and how did the music scene there start and so like it helped shape a lot of that and how I how I view the world. So. I do love this documentary. I don't love the record as much as I love the documentary, but I also love Foo Fighters. And this this documentary, which is uh, you know partially part of the record and their their combined effort, they are part. They are they go together, and they're one of the best things that the as a collective thing. They're one of the best things that the Foo Fighters have made, in my opinion. And while I can I can separate the documentary from the series or from the album, watch it. Yep. Definitely watch it. Yep. Wholeheartedly agree with everything you're saying. So now we're at the end of our conversation about Sonic Highways. We're at the end of 2014 and rumors about their breakup are largely overblown. They even poke fun at it for the next couple of years. They come back three years later in 2017 with their ninth studio album, Concrete and Gold, featuring a new producer and a new approach to making music. We're going to talk about it a lot more on our last episode of the albums we know, <laughs> because yes. that's important to keep in mind because we are approaching February 5th. This, is ne- this will be next week by the time you're listening to this, February 5th, 2021. Medicine and Midnight, the 10th studio album by the Food Fires will be released. But this has been Sonic Highways, ep- uh, episode eight, album number eight. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our discussion. We hope you both watch the documentary series if you can find it and listen to the album. 
in in sequence because we feel that's the best way to experience it. You can listen to our stuff in sequence because we feel that's the best way that you should experience it. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available, just simply search Music Unsubscribe. That is where all of our content lives. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Music Unsubpod. Talk to us. Tell us why you agree with me that I Am A River is the best song of the record. And you or disagree. why you agree with me that <laughs> it is not the best song or at least that it is not a, a good representation of New York City. But we hope that you enjoyed the conversation. My name is Peter. My name is Andrew. We'll be back next time for Episode 9, Concrete and Gold. Thank you so much for listening.